If you've got a Bible, please open again at Revelation 17. And just as a little preliminary notice, um, we can't possibly spend time in each verse. I mean, there are uh, 18 uh, in this passage. If we even spent one minute, uh, then we're running, begin to run out of time with a, an introduction and conclusion. So if there's anything that you feel we have bypassed or we, you need to deal with uh, in more detail, then come and talk to us. Um, and we'll be glad to. John will be glad to answer any questions you have. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, once again, we know we need your help, and we're glad you are always with us. You're always near to us, and you want to help us. You never leave us alone. And by your Spirit, you long for us to be overcomers. to stand. Help us to do that. Even tonight, we ask for your help as we study these words together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're coming now to, I suppose, the final section of the book of Revelation. And this section is dominated by two women, a prostitute and a bride, two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem, and two masters, the beast or beasts, and the lamb. And over it all, of course, as we have already noted, the lesson again and again is the king wins, the lamb wins. In fact, in chapters 17 to 19, what we see here is the complete destruction of every enemy that faces God. Satan himself, the dragon, the beast of the sea, the sort of powers of this world, the beast of the land, the, the false spirituality and ideology of the world, and with special reference to chapters 17 and 18, the city of Babylon, also known as the great prostitute. But God wants us to know as we l- learn these things, as we learn these lessons, study these chapters, that he alone rules. Jesus definitely wins, and that we can keep going. And we don't need to compromise. But how are we to understand what is happening all around us in the world? As we wait for Jesus to return, how are we to understand what's happening? How do we understand worldliness? Well, chapter 17 paints it all out very clearly for us. Chapter 18, actually, which we'll look at next week, shows us that worldliness is doomed. We're going to see the end of worldliness as it's revealed there in Revelation 18. But what we have in 17 is this, I suppose, unveiling of worldliness. And verses 1 and 2, you'll see there that this is a heavenly vision. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her the, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. This is a kind of literary video revealing so much that's going to impact us for life, inform us about what's actually happening around us, and help to transform us so that we will live for Jesus Christ as we wait for him to return. Yes, there's strange imagery, as there is throughout the whole of the book. And I do have a a sympathy for, especially for younger folks, but bear with us, try and stick with it, try to remember what these things stand for, who they stand for, and 
as we do, we will learn the truth about the world, about sin, and we will learn how we are to live in the, uh, in the days before Jesus returns. So we've got to get straight to the, the, the passage. Here, here's our first section, the hideousness of worldliness. And this is revealed for us in the first six verses. A great prostitute is revealed. Now, she represents Babylon. You can see there very clearly that's stated in the last verse, but we'll get to that sometime in the next two hours. Um, Verse 18 tells us who the great prostitute is. So Babylon, great prostitute, same thing, worldliness, the world. That's what it stands for. So this passage helps us to see the hideousness of worldliness. Now, this is very important because when the Word and the Spirit calibrates our thinking, we begin to see things as they really are. Now, we can see the beauty of God, for instance, can't we? We can see the beauty of the gospel. We can see the beauty of the cross. But we also can see, at the very same time, the, the perversions of the broken world full of false open lies. That's why we read from Colossians 3 at the beginning of the service, where Paul urges us to set our hearts on Christ and things above. Yes? Set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. Not on earthly things. Because when we do that, we live differently because we see things differently. We see the beauty of God and we see the the perversion of sin. So heavenly-mindedness leads to fruitful living on earth. And part of that understanding, of course, is here in Revelation 17 and 18 and 19 and the rest of the book. John elsewhere uh, explains what worldliness looks like. Uh, You're familiar, I'm sure, with this verse, 1 John 2. Um, For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. That's a definition of worldliness. Not from the Father, but from the world. This leads to dysfunctionality. Do you want to know why the the world is so rotten? Why there's so many dysfunctional people living dysfunctional lives? There it is. The cravings of sinful man. The lust of his eyes. The boasting of what he has and does. That explains it. The brokenness. Because there is within us this desire to fill the empty space in our hearts with something. And if it's not Jesus, then it's going to be the trash of the world. So 1 John 2 verse 16 is the essence of worldliness. It's the life of Babylon. It's the way of the great prostitute. There it is. It promises so much, produces so little, and costs a great deal. But we need eyes and minds to see and understand. We need our hearts set on Christ and our minds set on things above. But let's get to the, um, the, the verses before us. First of all, we see in verse 1 that worldliness will be punished. Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute. Right at the very beginning, we're told not just the, the display or how worldliness is displayed to us, but the end of worldliness, and that's punishment. And that's going to be exposed uh, for us next week in detail in Revelation 18. The second thing we see is that worldliness is like 
prostitution, harlotry, or whoredom. And maybe your different versions might use some of those different words. What are we getting at here? What's John getting at? Well, the world owes allegiance to God. The world should relate to God as a holy wife does to a loving husband in pure commitment and devotion. That's what should happen. But the world has forgotten God. The world has rejected God and sold itself to anyone or anything it desires. Now, that's actually earth this. You see, when an authority, like our government, for instance, does not honor Christ and his ways, does not follow his agenda, but follows sinful agendas and makes unbiblical laws, they're acting like a prostitute, and the prostitute is seeking to seduce us into agreeing with what they have passed or what they believe. Now, this is something that's presented to us right throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, God uses prostitution as a picture of God's people abandoning his covenant and his loving relationship. So, the Old Testament, what do we see? God's people moving from the groom, Yahweh, to any idol they could get their hands on. From the true husband, God, to a multitude of false religions, idolatry or spiritual adultery. So the Bible is clear. God wants us to see that worldliness is not a neutral thing. And sometimes I think we think, oh, it's kind of there. We can try a wee bit, taste a wee bit, play with a wee bit. It's a neutral thing. No, it's not, says God. It's not an innocuous, inoffensive, safe choice for us. It is destructive. It's like prostitution. It's ridden with disease. It costs a great deal. It'll destroy you. Worldliness, verse 2, dominates world rulers. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wines of her adulteries. See, the powerful in our world at any stage, right throughout history, they love worldliness. Leaders love worldliness. Why? Because, basically, the lie of Genesis 3, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Everybody likes that kind of position of power and authority. And worldliness offers it. So they pursue their own name and their own glory and their own purposes. Their egos drive them. Do you ever wonder what drives people after they've made their money and their gutter, the height, what drives them? What keeps them going on and on and on? Well, it's their egos driving them on more and more of the world and less and less and less of God. It's hideous. That's what's going on, and it will be like this until Babylon falls. It will be like this until the prostitute is killed. It's going to be like this until the new Jerusalem is established. That's what John is telling us. And in the second half of verse 2, we quote that worldliness intoxicates the peoples of the earth. The people are drunk. The unbelieving world is drunk tonight. 
They live in a godless stupor, blind to God's claims and gospel. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. So what we have in the the world around us, we've got to understand this, is a world staggering around, going from high to high, from lie to lie, seeking to kill the pain of an empty life, chasing the next thrill, chasing the next pill or the next drink or the the next fix, the next piece of enjoyment from the world, conned, witless, stoned. This is the world. It's a weapon of the dragon. And worldliness is satanic. Uh, really, verses 3 to 6, it's the beast of Revelation 13. We remember we're introduced to the two beasts in Revelation 13. John sees it all so clearly. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit. Again, there's a vision, remember, into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and seven heads and ten horns. See, the beast fuels all this wickedness around us. The beast fuels the worldliness that destroys. And you'll notice there, it's a glitzy, verse 4. It's very attractive. The woman was dressed in purple, which is the color of the rich, scarlet, the color of the rich, and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls, Alluring, full of bling, wealthy, attractive. We, might, we used to say at home, you know, of someone, um, nice from far, but far from nice. And then this is exactly what we see here. Nice from far, but we get up close, absolutely horrible. Look at verse 4. Look at her cup. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. Her cup, you know, this seductive cup, which she says, oh, I'm, I'm beautiful. I'm exactly what you're looking for. Come, come, taste of my cup. And we all go, big guys. Oh, yes, we want some of the cup. The cup is full of filth. Don't drink from her cup. And then we've got our title in verse 5. This is the title that was written on her forehead, Mystery. Uh, There's a deed of mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. Now, I think the word is, is trying to shock us here. I think God is trying to shock us into realizing what we are doing when we get into line with the world, when we chase the world, when we sin willingly. We align ourselves with her. We align ourselves with the mother of prostitutes. Now, next time you are about to go in willingly into a sin, and you're on your own, and you know there's nobody watching you, and you, uh, and, and you say, I really shouldn't do this, but I will. Would you please remember, this is what you're doing. You're getting yourself into bed with the mother of prostitutes. That's shocking, isn't it? But we think, oh, it's just a neutral little bit of fun. Won't do him any harm. So nobody else can see what's going on. And then in verse 6, the violence against the church. This is all satanic, this worldliness. I saw the woman was drunk with the blood of, of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. 
As alcohol makes people drunk, the world gets drunk on the blood of the disciples of Jesus. The world is always violent against God's people. Always has been. It always will be. Yeah, we have been very fortunate here, but I think those days are gone, and who knows what the youngest here will face sometime in the future, perhaps maybe not spilling their blood, but they will be persecuted. What did Jesus say? The enemy will just want to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says, I'm the one who brings life. Jesus said, if the world hits you, keep in mind it hit me first. That's the hideousness of worldliness. See what it is. See what it does so that you might be informed and transformed. Secondly, and this is the harder bit. You think that's bit hard, this bit's even harder. The mystery of worldliness explained. Yeah, verse 7. Why are you astonished? Because, sorry, the end of verse 6. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and the beast. She rides. So uh, we're, we're very fortunate. We're promised an explanation, and that's exactly what we're given here. So we need our biblical thinking caps on, and we need to work hard now in these next 10 minutes if we're going to make sense of all of this. In verse 8, uh, it's explained here um, who the beast is and what the beast is. And what we see here is a, a counterfeit Christ. This, this is what the beast does. Verse 8, the beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. It's, this is a parody of, of, of God, a counterfeit of Christ. Now, you've got to remember, who is described as the one who was, who is, and who is to come? Who is that? That's God. That's, he's described to us in Revelation 1 verse 4, 1, Revelation 1 verse 8. Who is described as the first and the last, the living one? I died and behold, I am alive forever. That's Jesus. Here, the beast is described in that same kind of triune way. Once was, now is not, and yet will come. See, the prostitute worldliness seeks to take on a godlike status. This I find incredibly helpful because I have to keep asking myself, why, oh why, oh why, after tasting of Christ and the things of the Spirit, why do I find the world so attractive? Why? Because it's almost got a godlike status. It tries to present itself as being spiritual, something I need, taking the very place of Jesus himself. Now, verse 8 is complicated, not as half as complicated as 9 to 11, which we're going to on to in a minute or two, but listen, my understanding of this is that Satan is bound. We already mentioned that before. Yet there are always moments of great evil in the world, before they end, 
there will be yet one more unveiling of great evil. Some would say that we can't be far from that. I would not know. But that's what verse 8 is referring to. Now is not, and will come up out of the abyss. Verse 9 to 11 uh, requires a great deal of, of wisdom. Uh, we've got the beast's seven heads, um, which refer to seven mountains or seven hills, also seven kings. The seven kings, five are dead. One is here and one is yet to come. Now, commentators go mad at the section uh, with all kinds of speculation and they come out with all kinds of apocalyptic conspiracy theories. It's really quite fascinating to see, of course, that something might have made sense, might have made sense back in the 17th century, makes no sense today, or something that would made sense today won't make sense in 50 years' time, and so on. I don't think John is interested in specific kings or kingdoms, ancient or modern. Rather, I think he's telling us that the great prostitute Babylon is carried along by the beast politicians and kings and emperors of all kinds in every age, including our own. That's what he's warning us about. Verse 11, he says, even the beast belongs to to the seven. Uh, Let me read that. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. So the beast shares the character of worldliness all around us, expressed in anti-Christian power and influence. But don't miss the point. Don't get too caught up in, oh, well, I don't understand that phrase. Or what. Don't, don't get upset. I think we need to understand that in the time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, there are going to be kings and powers. They're going to rise up. They're going to rule in worldliness. And then they're going to pass away. They're a temporary influence. And defeat is going to come to their way. It's certain. But it's all going to be repeated again. And then again. And then again. And I think this defeat is spelled out uh, very much so in verses 12 to 14. Maybe we should read those verses. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour in other words, a temporary period, will receive authority as kings along with the beasts. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beasts. And here's the good news. They will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Kings and political powers and systems will be allies of evil and Satan. That's what 12 and 13 are saying. The idea of 10 there is fullness or completion. So all the political powers seek to serve one purpose, worldliness. They serve the beast. Verse 13, let's read that again. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. So political power sells its soul to the beast and is an alliance with the evil one. So again, remember what he said back in verse 7? Don't be astonished. In verse 9, he says, we need a mind of wisdom. We've got to see the explanation for all the evil around us in every age. But, praise God, verse 14, the lamb wins. 
but the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. See, Jesus will defeat all who oppose God. And there's such irony here, is there not? Think of all the political powers with all their armies and all their gold reserves and all their strength and all their numbers, and they're defeated by a lamb. (laughs) A wee lamb. You see, in the end, and there is going to be an end, Jesus wins. And we're going to be involved with it. Notice that? And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. We're going to be part of the victory parade. We're going to be part of the victory team. The called, chosen, and faithful. God in his grace is going to include me and you, if you are in Christ, in the victory. He's going to use us. I think we need reminding today that the Lamb wins. I don't know what's going on in your life. I know what's going on in the country. It's not good. This last week has been horrible. What was decided on Monday by our government was a travesty. And they will be held accountable for that. Don't doubt it. It's been a bad week in our country. But the Lamb's going to win. The King is on the throne. Hallelujah. No enemy of Jesus can prevail against his purposes. Never forget that. The lamb wins. Please don't think for one minute that we are a pathetic people involved in some kind of futile attempt to just to be good. We're not just a, a group of weak-willed people or weak-minded people who are kind of, we have to get together on a Sunday because we can't cope living out there in the world. And somehow if we keep geeing each other up, We'll get to the end. No. We are on the side of that triumphant lamb. The king wins. The lamb wins. Jesus wins. And that's what we must never forget. Thirdly, and just for a moment or two, the destructiveness or destructiveness of uh, worthiness is promised, verses 15 to 18. Notice there in verse 15, uh, the prostitute, worldliness, Babylon, has immense influence. The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are, notice that, peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Back in verse 2, come and I will uh, show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. That's what, in other words, the world is in control of the world, (laughs) So immense influence, influence right over the entire world. It's widespread. She corrupts all, except she cannot corrupt God's true people. She cannot. But her influence is evil, and we see it all around us. But this, these next couple of verses, 16 and 17, wow. I mean, it's double wow. I mean, wow, verse 16. Let's read it. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hit the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Quite quite graphic, isn't it? But what we see here is eventually the beast will turn on the prostitute and destroy her. Satan does not care about the people who belong to his kingdom. 
Satan hates even his own people. Satan never wants what is good for anyone or anything. And all who chase after worldliness and serve the prostitute will be hurt and ultimately destroyed. Prostitution is destroyed by her customers. Here the prostitute, the great prostitute, destroyed by her very customers. The world self-destructs because evil is self-destructive. And verse 17, it's all part of God's plan. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast and their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. It's all part of God's great plan. God is sovereign even over what his enemies plan to do. How can you overcome such a God? You simply can't. He never does evil, but no evil is outside his control. God is not mocked. Evil will be destroyed because all along God is in control. And then verse 18, they are. We did get to the end eventually. And we've got five minutes left. I've got a wee bit of a conclusion now, so bear. Don't be thinking you're going home soon. We've got the conclusion to come. Verse 18 reminds us again that the prostitute and Babylon are one and the same. The end of Babylon comes next week where the emphasis changed from being the prostitute to Babylon. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Now, Uh, John and I, right at the very beginning, said the difficult thing is applying all of this kind of teaching. Uh, And I think we have worked hard at that. Uh, We've discussed it at times. And I wanted to to leave with, I suppose, three or four uh, parts of of application. First of all, there there are two ways to live. One writer puts it like this, and and therefore I'm, I'm... going to just quote him. Uh, he's rather blunt, so this is, this is what we, we've got here. We've got the choice of two ways to live. One way serves the lamb, the other, the beast. Which way do you want to go? One way fellowships with the church, the lamb's pure bride. The other sells its soul to the world, the beast's foul whore. One way lives for what will last forever, the other for what will look good for a short while before being destroyed. One way pleases God through obedience, the other carries out his purpose by filling up the measure of transgression on which he will display his wrath. One way leads to the new Jerusalem, the other to hell. There are two ways to live. And whose side are you on? Are you in bed with the great prostitute? Because if you don't belong to Jesus tonight, that's exactly where you are. You are in bed with the great prostitute. And even if you are a believer and you're struggling, I wonder, do you see your struggle as flirting with the great prostitute? 
flirting with the mother of prostitutes. Here's three things. Don't pull out of the world. God calls us to engage with the world spiritually. There are two opposites. We often talk about that here, but I want to remind you. There's pietism, where we remove ourselves from the world and go into a kind of monastery and practice our religion. That's pietism or escapism. And by the way, folks, we can make our church like a monastery to escape into a holy huddle just to keep us kind of um, sane. The other approach is activism, where we engage in all kinds of action plans to change the world. We, we, we get ourselves busy, busy, busy. We can be so busy here doing and organizing that actually we're not living the true spiritual life. Both are wrong. Pietism, activism. What Jesus prayed for in John 17, he says, please, Father, do not take them out of the world, but make them useful in the world. That's the balance. So we don't pull out. We ought to be saved, holy, disciples of Jesus Christ and useful to him as we wait for him to return. Secondly, don't be seduced by the world. We've got to make a choice. Are we going to love Jesus or are we going to love the prostitute? Are we going to love Jesus or are we going to love the world? I think this choice comes upon us many, many times. And by the way, I don't think it should be a choice that we make negatively. And what I mean by that is this. We could argue, I, I know that the world can't satisfy me. I know that the world cannot make me happy. Therefore, I am not going to choose the world. That's the kind of a negative argument. I, I think we should be thinking more of a positive argument. Jesus alone is the lover of my soul. Jesus alone is the one who can satisfy. Jesus alone is beautiful and wholesome. And he is mine and I am his. And I am not going to go this way. That's positive, isn't it? Don't be seduced. But here's a third one, or really a fourth one. And this is one I fear some of us are in danger of. I'm trying to put on my uh, watchman role as, as elder, uh, the shepherd role, the pastor role that I have. Here's what I sadly watch. People almost sleepwalking slowly into worldliness. Slowly, slowly, slowly walking into the arms of the great prostitute. It can happen so easily. Slowly, but surely. Losing grip of Jesus. Slipping towards the world. Inch by inch, bit by bit. Slowly over the years. How can you see that? Well, I see it. When once someone was on fire for Jesus, passionate to serve, the passion's gone, the excitement is gone. I think it's fair to say something's gone wrong. A slow sleepwalking into the world. And when you talk to folk who are in this kind of sleepwalk, 
they say, oh, it's my work. Or it's my physical image that's important. Or it's my comfort and my pleasure and my desires. It's my time. It's my money. It's my holidays. It's my pension. And many of these things are are important. Of course they are. But it's me, me, me. It's me, myself, I. And it's less and less and less about him. Sleepwalking into a shipwrecked faith. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Now, I know there's a specific context for that, and we don't have time to go into it, but here's how I I see it. I think the world says to us, permissible things are always beneficial to us. Permissible things are always constructive for us. And you know what? They're not necessarily so. And if we fall for that lie, we will sleepwalk into worldliness, into the very arms of the great prostitute. Many times, the permissible things lead to disaster. Many, many times, permissible things just simply are a distraction to us. And we need to be wise. The great prostitute, she cannot win against God's people, but boy, she can hurt us. Be careful. Let's live for Jesus and his glory. Let me pray for us. Father, this book is a mystery. But how gracious of you, right at the very end of your revelation, to give us the, the revelation of what life between the first and second coming of Jesus is going to be like. How gracious of you. How good of you. And here we are informed and warned and we pray transformed the world around us is so seductive thank you for even these sometimes uncomfortable images of prostitutes it shakes us out of our complacency and reminds us of your grace and love So, Father, please hear our cry. We want to be, we want to be Christ-centered. We want to be able to think on things above. We want to have our hearts set on Christ. We do not want to be caught in the world with the cravings of sinful man and the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does. Father, give to us your great gifts and may we serve you well in this generation. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.